is the Storymobile podcast. We are a solar-powered moving art space that travels to events and through neighborhoods to collect your stories. The St. Paul Almanac book was created in 2005 and has since been released annually. The goal is to bring together the diverse community of St. Paul through literary arts. The Almanac is a meeting place for sharing stories and artwork of our community. This year, the St. Paul Almanac released their 11th volume, On a Collected Path. As part of a reading festival, authors have gathered at various venues throughout St. Paul to read their fabulous work. On Sunday, April 23rd, the bookstore Subtext Books hosted these amazing authors, and here they are reading their great work. I'm probably going to mess up a couple names, <laughs> but I'm going to try. Our first reader today is Anita Duale. 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 And she lives in St. Paul with her husband and two sons. She blogs at firstteacher.wordpress.com. That's the letter, or the number one ST teacher. So check that out. And without further ado, Anita. Um, I was published in the 2009 Almanac. And when I got this one, I thought, wow, <laughs> you are really making um, improvements. And this is a, a great democratic publishing endeavor. So um, thank you for making it happen and for all the people who have contributed. My um, piece is on page 174. It's called A Full Pantry. In early February, we broke open the seal on our last pint of mulberry jam. It took us back to the summer days when the mulberry tree on the, on the Elmhurst Cemetery fence line was laden with ripe fruit. I wish we could pick mulberries now, one son said. We recalled how the tree had provided a feast for the birds, but the birds were not keeping up. Plenty of mulberries were dropping to the ground only to be trampled or driven upon. So I called up the cemetery manager and asked for permission to pick the berries, promising him some mulberry cobbler in return. He was surprised when we actually delivered the warm dessert, fresh out of the oven. It's best the first day, I told him. He responded by saying we should, keep, we should help ourselves to more mulberries if we like. So during July, we picked enough for two small batches of mulberry jam, three cobblers, and over a month's worth of smoothies. Plenty of the berries also went straight into the boys' mouths, staining their lips a deep purple. One time, when we were picking, my younger son climbed up the chain-link fence to reach some berries that were higher in the tree. When his older brother attempted the same thing, he scratched his knee. I sent the crying boy and his younger brother home together. Daddy was there to wash the wound and wipe away the tears. My husband had not joined us because he's not one to stand by the side of the road and pick fruit off of a tree that does not belong to us. But foraging has grown in popularity, becoming a trendy thing to do even in urban areas. Foraging finds friends within the slow food movement, which espouses eating more foods grown locally. I'm drawn to it because I enjoy turning something with seemingly little value, such as fruit falling off a tree, into something people would actually want. This is second nature to those who have lived through the Depression, like my grandmothers. Foraging is one way of following their footsteps, if only a little. I didn't stop with the mulberries. Last year, I also received 
cucumbers, extra large zucchini, and tomatoes, both red and green, from gardeners who had more produce than they could use. I was happy to take them off their hands and preserve them. By the end of the growing season, those six jars of mulberry jam were joined by 38 other jars. Salsa, relish, and other goodies, both sweet and sour, packed at the peak of freshness. What a sense of satisfaction came from looking over the rows of jars in the pantry. And what satisfaction came from sharing them. In the months that followed, when it was time to give a gift, I often raided my pantry. I got the most compliments on the apple butter and the green tomato salsa. Now, as winter draws to a close, our pantry is rather sparse looking. But with a new growing season on the horizon, I'm expecting more opportunities for eating, preserving, and sharing locally grown food. I'm gonna try this. Yin's Banga, is that right? Yes. Yes, has lived variously on both sides of the river for over 30 years. When not practicing architecture, he collects moments in words and pictures. Um, the piece I'm going to read today is a fairly short poem. It's on page uh, 38. It's called I Sometimes Forget. I sometimes forget crazy to you means twirling in circles, not the woman on the light rail, or my roommate from the U, or the week I had at work. I sometimes forget goodnight to you means sweet dreams, not escape at the muddy pig, or an evening without hurt, or a night without obsession. I sometimes forget please to you means can I have it, can I, can I? Not I really need this job, or spend your life with me, or don't leave. I sometimes forget you're four, not 30-something, and words to me are suitcases, but words to you are paintbrushes. Thank you. Our next reader is Christina Joyce. Okay. Uh, she often seeks writing inspiration in other parts of the world, but finds her richest material comes from right here in St. Paul, where she grew up. Isn't that often the case? <laughs> Oh, thank you. I'd like to thank um, uh, St. Paul Almanac and Subtext um, Bookstore for uh, giving me the, this opportunity to share this story with you. Evelyn Aging. On well, Evelyn and I head to Calvary Cemetery as we do every June to place flowers on Uncle Jerry's grave. Along Front Street in St. Paul, this Catholic cemetery is the final resting place for many of my relatives. Jerry is buried in a section that looks like a grassy crater downhill from a discreetly segregated stronghold of nuns and priests. Two simple markers indicate Jerry and Evelyn's grave sites. Only today we can't find them and again ask if she remembers any landmarks that will help us find Jerry. He's buried 10 yards from where a tree used to be, she says, waving her bouquet of yellow and white daisies at the distinctly treeless area where we are standing. <laughs> Evelyn deftly moves among the tombstones just like someone 20 years younger than her 85 years. I hike uphill to try again when I see a large stub barely visible in the overgrown grass. Glancing around, I spot a few graves I hadn't noticed before, and there's Jerry's. Next to it is a flat stone marker bearing Evelyn's name and year of birth, 1909. 
When Ellen turns 90, she asks my mom, her youngest sister by 22 years, to drive her to Liberty State Bank to renew her CDs. She wants to make them five-year certificates to get a higher interest rate. Mom suggests that maybe five years is too long. <laughs> Reluctantly, Evelyn agrees and renews the CDs for 24 months. Five years later, Evelyn is at the funeral home to plan and prepay her funeral expenses. She selects a smoky blue metal casket with a simple satin lining and makes plans for the funeral lunch. When it comes time to write the check, Evelyn balks when the funeral associate says she can't pay for her funeral in installments. Maybe if you were 10 or 15 years younger, he says. <laughs> Grumbling, she pulls out her checkbook. Even Dayton's used to let me do layaway. <laughs> My brother Mike and I take a reluctant Evelyn, now 98, to view an assisted living facility we think she will like. She's been living in a one-bedroom apartment on Randolph Avenue for 13 years, an easy walking distance to her church, grocery store, and favorite place to get a haircut, Schmidt's Barbershop. Evelyn tours the residence in the Midway area just blocks from Edmond Avenue where she grew up. We check out apartments of varying views and visit the dining room where we eat lunch of hot turkey with mashed potatoes and limp green beans. The manager provides more information about their services, noting, noting that there is a year-long waiting list. Evelyn nods and smiles as he talks. Well, he says, leaning closer to her good ear. How does that sound to you, Evelyn? This seems like a very nice place to live, she says. She picks up her purse and stands when I'm ready to leave. <laughs> Evelyn holds out for a few more months living independently, but when the call comes later that fall that there's an opening, she takes it. She settles in, falling asleep to the neon glow of Porky's drive-in outside her window. At her 100th birthday, Evelyn is asked the secret to her longevity. She shrugs her shoulders and smiles shyly. I just wake up every morning. <laughs> Another birthday rolls around and three generations of nieces and nephews are gathered to celebrate with Evelyn. My cousin Sheila leans in to give Evelyn a kiss on her cheek. Aunt Evelyn, do you know who I am? Evelyn tilts her head quizzically and says, don't you know? <laughs> Two weeks shy of her 104th birthday, Evelyn becomes the oldest resident in the nursing home. By her 105th birthday, she's back in second place when a 107-year-old moves into the building. <laughs> Evelyn is on the second floor patio outside her room, deadheading bright marigolds and red geraniums from her wheelchair. It's one of her favorite pastimes, reminiscent of the gardening she and Jerry used to do. She studies the row of potted plants along the iron railing. One by one, Evelyn snaps off their shriveled ends. She tosses the spent buds over the railing, watching them drift into the unknown. He is the author of the memoir, Deliverance at Hand. Come up, James. So I actually have two pieces that appeared in the almanac, so I want you guys to pick. Do you want a story about the journey or a story about a destination? <laughs> oh. I just hear journey? Okay. So we're going to page, uh, we're not going to go to page 154 then, my other story. We're going to go to page 136 and read cute little cars. The first time I saw one, I did a double take. It looked like someone had chopped the car in half. 
Staring at the truncated vehicle, I soon realized it was, in fact, a complete car, just a very small one. Judging from the logo on the sides, it appeared to be a car people could rent for short periods of time. Cars I could rent by the minute? What did I care? I own two cars. I didn't need to borrow anyone else's. My four-year-old daughter felt differently. Isla pointed out the tiny cars whenever we drove past one. Look, she'd say, squealing with amusement, there's one of those cute little cars. She often described them using the word cute. She had this uncanny ability to spot them before anyone else, from blocks away. Just seeing one parked on the side of the road as we drove by was sufficient to brighten her mood. One morning as I lifted the blinds, Isla looked out the window and saw one parked right outside our living room. She acted as if our home had been bestowed some sort of honor. She said she wanted to go for a ride in one someday. I concurred that it sounded like fun, but I kept putting it off. That is, until I received a flyer offering free registration and 30 minutes of free rental time. After registering with Car2Go, the company responsible for planting the cars around the city, and receiving my member card in the mail, I waited for the perfect day. I told my wife I wanted to wait until I saw one of the cars parked a block or so away from our house. That way I could walk over to it, check that my member card granted me access to the vehicle, figure out how to install Isla's car seat, ensure I could start it, successfully drive it the few hundred feet back to our house, and then, only then, would we tell Isla a surprise awaited for her outside. One day, things went as planned. I called home, which at this point was only 20 feet away. <laughs> okay, I said, everything's good. Send Isla outside. My wife held open the screen door as a perplexed Isla stepped out onto the stoop. Then she saw the car. I opened the passenger door and stood next to it, gesturing for her to get in. Hello, Isla, I said as her smile widened. Do you want to go for a ride in this little car with me? Of course she did. She tickled at the unexpected event, so, so tickled at the unexpected event, she put her hands over her mouth and walked down the stairs as quickly as she could. Be careful, my wife said as Isla descended the steps to the street. Once she got in, she laughed with delight, bobbing her legs up and down, unable to contain her excitement. I helped her buckle in, and then, for the next hour, we drove around St. Paul. First, we went through the drive-thru at near the nearby McDonald's. Mm -hmm. But when they said their ice cream machine was inoperative, we peeled out of the driveway and headed to the Dairy Queen in Highland Village. With ice cream and plenty of napkins in hand, we then took a leisurely drive down Grand Avenue. At one stoplight, I figured out the radio, and we turned on some tunes. At the next stoplight, I encouraged her to use the napkins more scrupulously. <laughs> we rolled down the window and let the perfect breeze blow in. Isla, the entire time, felt completely overjoyed to be sitting not just in one of these cute cars, but to be sitting in the front seat. Her wide eyes took in the urban vista that her normal backseat views had never provided. Sporadically, she giggled aloud. The city was like our own personal amusement park. What do you think, I asked. Great, she exclaimed. What did you feel when you saw that we were going for a ride in one of these little cars? Surprised, she said, and excited. I was surprised excited. <laughs> we stopped to visit Ace Hardware. I didn't really need anything, but I figured I would pick up a couple of items as an excuse to make the trip last longer. My complimentary 30 minutes had ended over a half hour before, so Isla and I got back in the car and headed home. Isla declared it her most best day ever and insisted I agree to rent a cute little car again another day. Thank you. Uh, all right, our next reader will be Beth. So, okay. Whether keeping track of her beloved baseball team's progress in her middle school diary or reflecting on family life in her essays today, Beth L. Voigt has always had a passion for writing. Growing up in St. Paul in a family of two hardworking parents, nine fun-loving siblings, and numerous friends and relatives who came for an afternoon visit or stayed for a few years, she has much to write about. 
always. She has published her work in national and local publications, including two editions of the St. Paul Almanac. Welcome, Beth Boyd. Getting my driver's license through the state of Minnesota was much easier than passing dad's driving tests, which were required before he would permit me, the sixth of his nine children, to drive the family car. Test one, driving with dad. One Sunday after my classroom training, but before I'd taken my behind the wheel training, dad drove me to Gloria Day Church parking lot on Snelling and Highland Parkway. I think so I was assured spiritual as well as parental guidance. <laughs> Handed me the keys to his silver Chrysler, got into the passenger side, and tilted his seat back. Drive around in a few circles, then figure eights. I'm going to take a little nap. <laughs> he leaned back and closed his eyes. <laughs> Why, shh, I'm resting, he said. But dad, I don't even know this is the best way to learn. This isn't the way you're supposed to teach. To that, he simply held up his hand. He turned slightly toward the passenger window and began to breathe heavily. I managed to put the car into gear, lurch forward, and slam on the brakes before hitting the light pole at the edge of the parking lot. <laughs> Dad readjusted his shoulders. I tried again and again until I was able to drive smoothly in a circle and create lopsided figure eights, which I later learned were to enhance my maneuverability and handling. After 45 minutes, I woke up my now snoring father. He nodded and took over the wheel. After four Sunday afternoons driving with Dad, I passed his first test. Test two, filling the gas cake. Dad told all of us kids to fill the gas tank each time we used the car. The first time I arrived home after driving the car, I announced, I filled it at the Highland Park Mobile Station. Great, Dad said. Fifteen minutes later, Dad went out the back door and came right back in. Where's the gas cap? He asked. It's right. I took it off and put it on the top of the car and then I traipsed back to the gas station on foot. They showed me an array of left-behind gas caps, <laughs> none of which matched my father's silver Chrysler. I selected a light blue one. This will do for now, but I expect to see a silver one on there soon. Two weeks later, I lost the light blue gas cap and replaced it with a black one. And as luck would have it, I lost my third gas cap within a month and found a silver one to match Dad's car perfectly. That's when I finally passed his second test. And I've since been thankful for the small plastic cord that now connects gas caps to cars. <laughs> test three, keeping my eyes on the road. Driving the family car to my part-time job at Snuffy's Malt Shop on Cleveland and St. Clair, I relished the freedom of cranking the tunes on the radio and rolling down all four windows. That proved to be my downfall. <laughs> As I took my eyes off the road to find KDWB, I rear-ended the Ford sedan in front of me. I dented Dad's fender and the Ford owner's. I returned home shaking at the thought of telling Dad and imagining the weeks of walking I would need to endure. Dad was reading the newspaper. Dad, I have some bad news, I trembled. Was anyone hurt? He asked without putting down the newspaper. No, but your car, is it drivable, he asked, flipping the next page. 
Yes, but it was a dent. I'm really sorry. He put down the paper. Well, now that that's out of the way, don't let it happen again. And he resumed reading. <laughs> I sighed, relieved I passed test three, and from then on, I was a full-fledged driver ready for the streets of St. Paul. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I just can't stop smiling. This is awesome. <laughs> All right, our next reader is Michael Murphy. Where's Michael? Okay. Michael Murphy is retired after a 30-year career in international business law at Medtronic and the Fagre Law Firm in Minneapolis. Before he became a lawyer, Mr. Murphy taught English at St. Olaf and McAllister Colleges. In retirement, he has been teaching a seminar on the law in literature at the University of St. Thomas Law School and writing poetry. Sounds like a nice retirement. <laughs> Welcome, Michael. Uh, I would also like to thank the editors um, of the Almanac for including my poem uh, in such good company in that wonderful book. Uh, and uh, the, the, the poem that I'm going to read today that it was uh, included in this issue of the Almanac is called uh, Diane of a Thousand Dreams. And it's on page 126 of the, of the uh, issue. Um, and uh, just a word about Diane of a Thousand Dreams. It's, it's one of a collection of poems that I've been writing in recent years in my retirement, when you have time to do these things. Um, and uh, they're, they're memory poems about uh, my growing up years in Crocus Hill. And the name of the book that they're included in is called The Songs of Crocus Hill. And these are memory poems in the sense that I've gone back and, and um, um, brought back uh, memories of people, places, experiences that I had at various stages of my life. And, and instead of memoirs, I put them in the form of poems. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. And I've also um, uh, collected them in a, in a, in a uh, they're organized in a sort of a sequence, a chronological sequence, so that the voice in each of the poems progresses in age as you go through the book. Uh, they start with uh, uh, a preschool uh, child and, and imagining experiences that the, that age person would have to grade school and high school, adulthood and beyond. Uh, Diane of a Thousand Dreams finds uh, the voice of uh, uh, a young man, probably 16 years old. He's old enough to drive a delivery truck. He's also old enough now to be very interested in girls and um, flatters himself to hope that maybe they would be interested in him too. But we'll see. This is Diane of a Thousand Dreams. Crew cut Tony in his jeans, white t-shirt, pack of luckies tucked in at his left shoulder, loads customer groceries into his cornflower blue delivery truck alongside Supernix Foods at the corner of Hamlin and Grand. He sets his route to stop last at Manitou Point, Diane Richardson's house across the bay from the White Bear Yacht Club. Diane of a Thousand Dreams drifts in her white two-piece on a raft in an azure pool overlooking Bel Air Bay she beckons Tony to the side of the pool, asks for a cigarette, fixes him with her indigo eyes. He lights a lucky. 
hands it into her wet fingers, leaves his hand on her raft. Your move, Diane. <laughs> Diane of a thousand dreams makes her move. She pushes her raft back out into the pool, turns her indigo eyes off toward the bay where white sails court one another across the periwinkle water. And as if calling to a pool boy for another drink, she says to Tony in her contralto voice, your brother, Tony, tell your sorry brother I'm still waiting for his call. <laughs> Since I was told I had time to maybe read two of these poems, so I'll read another one. Uh, this one is called Carl Wolf, and uh, it will uh, explain itself, I hope. His Crocus Hill custom required more of Carl Wolf than the mending and hemming of clothes. Carl was a listener, a safe keeper of secrets who dwelt in the confessional darkness of his shop at Grand and Oxford across from Vince's Pure Oil. His eyes, those of a bird wary of predators from the sky. His head, a tonsured Saxon monk's. Would he say so little for shame of his immigrant English or for the threads he'd always be cutting with his teeth? No one cared as long as no one but Carl was listening. Could you fix her high school uniform so she won't show till June? You'd know best who'd need my Robert's clothes. But what of Carl? Where was he to take his secrets, his screaming dreams of crematoria? Not to his wife, not to his daughter, or to his son. They'd stayed behind in the indistinguishable ashes of his house in Dresden. So where was Carl to go, if not to the hard promise of a song? Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if ever I should forget you. Isadora, great, great. That's good. <laughs> like the cheese, I said, yes. but that's not quite right. Okay. Isadora is a writer and photographer living in St. Paul, and she believes in cartography and beekeepers, but has little need for maps or honey. She frequently reads her work at the Barbaric Yaw, and she is a past participant of the Loft Mentor Series. Welcome, Isadora. Good afternoon, everyone. Hi. <laughs> and gentlemen back there, you're going to be like my sound check. Can you hear me okay? <laughs> Good. Perfect. What a great day to spend inside a bookstore, right? Or not. <laughs> we'll see. So. I'm only going to read the one poem that was in the almanac this year, but they did ask me to make a statement about writing. And really, when it comes to writing poetry, I feel it's something that must be felt. It's a visceral reaction that you have to words on paper. However, that would be very boring if I were just 
and awkward, really, if I were to stand up here and just make eye contact with everybody. So I will physically be reading my poem, which you can find on page 233. It is titled, Doomsday Hearts. You planted your doomsday heart in the soil long enough to grow pumpkins, to grow towering coniferous trees, to grow an albatross winged and perfect like the terrible angels who neglected your bedroom window. Most days, you laid naked, face down in the fields, hands trembling as the yellow as the yellow manure chemical clouds rolled in with the afternoon. And we didn't know how to introduce you to dinner guests. Your fingernails overgrown, your hair tangled with bramble. You said the well was poisoned. You said everything tasted like dust. You said cities on the horizon had been burning for days, that rain clouds held particulates and human remains. At sunset, you sat on the porch laughing at the windmills for spinning their arms. You refused ice cream sundaes. You rejected invitations to the drive-in, claiming that our thinning hair our bleeding bellies and our graying lips were not proper companions for the world still alive in your memories. Thank you. I'm just going to give a quick plug for something that Cracked Walnut does. I've, I've participated in it with Izzy before, and it's called Poetry Club. And it's the first Saturday of every month, most months, um, at 2 o'clock or 1 o'clock, various... 1 o'clock. 1 o'clock at Bone Shaker Books in Minneapolis. So if you, if you do have to cross the river, that's a good reason to do so. <laughs> and it's basically a kind of a workshop opportunity for anybody. It's open to anybody. Bring a couple copies of each of your poems, and pa we'll pass them around, and we kind of, you know, help each other out. So it's really a fantastic opportunity. It's run by Cracked Walnut. You can find information about it on the Cracked Walnut website, which is crackedwalnut.org. So, and if, you're, uh, if you have any questions about that afterwards, you can ask Izzy or myself. She's actually been there more than I have, but it's, yeah, it's wonderful. Run by Dave Stein, who runs Cracked Walnut. And our next reader, without further ado, is Deborah Costendine. And uh, Deborah loves historic St. Paul and all its interesting nooks and crannies. Deborah is mostly an artist, an art therapist, and mental health practitioner, and an occasional writer and storyteller. Deborah comes from a long line of misfits and whopper tellers. Welcome, Deborah. I'd like to thank the St. Paul Almanac for this absolutely gorgeous book with all these wonderful photographs and, and uh, uh, art. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, all right, yes, um, my story is called Ghost Ship. Beneath the vast beauty of Indian Mounds Park sits Holman Field. St. Paul's diminutive airport holds many a fantastic story and historic lore. 
This is one of those stories. Airplane watching is an enjoyable pastime for many people, including myself, especially with my young son, Doug in tow. In the early 1990s, we would regularly visit home and field. Children of all ages are naturally drawn to airports and large mechanical objects of any kind. Moreover, Holman Field held a magnificent secret. There, amongst the newer craft, stood an old Eastern Airline DC-7 prop airplane. It sat weathering through the seasons year after year. In winter, it became a snowbird blanketed and secured in its icy coverlet. Spring's wind tore at its tattered tail as the lowland floods percolated into the airport. The DC-7 would mysteriously move from wet to dry land and back again when the floodwaters receded. Summer sun faded its peeling paint slowly degrading its appearance. My thoughts took off and imagined this magnificent ghostly ship silently awaiting a signal for takeoff. The metallic threaded curtains, yes, curtains, were arranged haphazardly inside. As I squinted at the foggy windows, I imagined a visage peeping back, nervously anticipating the whir of the prop and rumbling of the engine. It was a mystery. Why did this magnificent mechanical marvel sit decomposing in home and field for all these years? Who owned it and why? Home and field had a tiny FAA office on the second floor and I inquired within. Yes, they knew who owned the aircraft. I explained I'd like to interview the owner, and they gave me Joe Coker's phone number. Nervously, I dialed his number. Mr. Coker, I understand you are the owner of the DC-7 at Holman Field, and if I bought you lunch in the cafeteria, would you tell me all about it? Sure, he said, and he made arrangements to meet. In those days, Holman Field had a cafeteria. This space was an especially intriguing example of Art Deco architecture. Red leather lounge seating with chrome arms and legs set the tone, along with a mezzanine floor that held a globe and a circling airplane embedded into the tile. The old lounge setting and cafeteria are gone now. But at the time, it was as if I was stepping back into the 1930s. Joe and I met in the old cafeteria, and his story unfolded. I could tell he loved to talk about that airplane. His eyes twinkled as he started his story. My DC-7 is the only fully intact DC-7 interior known to exist, he boasted. With the exception of the captain's chair, he added, frowningly, which somebody stole. Why is it sitting idle? Well, you see, when I bought the plane in 1971, I owned the 20th Century Travel Club. I purchased and flew the DC-7 from Detroit to Holman Field and intended to use it to charter flights. It has been grounded ever since, he added, scowling. The FAA would never approve the DC-7 for flight, he muttered resentfully. 
Joe, it seemed, had a love-hate relationship with his airplane. He would come out to Holman Field and turn the engine over from time to time to keep the mechanic sound. It was Joe who faithfully moved the DC-7 back and forth when flooding season came. He had been doing this for 20 years. After those many years, he continued, I decided to sell the plane. Joe had a suspicious nature, and with each suitor came an unsatisfactory conclusion. As quickly as the admirers came, they would just as quickly be cast off. Joe believed one buyer in particular was going to use it for drug running. He lowered his voice. He had long hair. <laughs> we continued to chat until there was nothing more to say. Lunch was over and it was time to go. We shook hands and that was the last I heard of Mr. Coker. For the next 10 years, Joe continued to move the DC-7 to high ground during the flooding season. In 2004, it was with great surprise and sadness that the local news announced the old DC-7 had been sold to an interest in Florida. It was only then that I knew its full handle. It was the 1958 Eastern Airline DC-7B N836D with the serial number 45345. My imagination took off again as I remembered the ghostly visage peeping from the curtain windows. It was finally hearing the whir of the prop and the rumbling of the engine. On Saturday, August 7, 2004, at 2.54 p.m. Central Standard Time, the DC-7B, having been ready for taxi, took off from Holman Field forever. That ghostly visage? It was waving goodbye through the newly cleaned windows. Our next reader is Nell Morningstar Ubelodi. Nell? This is a piece that I wrote when I was um, finishing up a long languishing undergraduate degree at Metro State U and I discovered I had to take uh, lab science again <laughs> um, because my 30 years earlier lab science was not somehow adequate or the records weren't adequate actually. So I was taking um, a lab science at the same time that I was taking a creative writing class in creative nonfiction and I kind of combined um, parts of the two. It's called Walking Through Sweet Hollow on the Feast of St. Bridget. I follow the ridgeline down the ravine toward the stream at the bottom. It is dawn and gold gleams on the horizon, leaking between the outlines of tree and bare brush. It spills across the expanse of icy snow and fills the hollows with blue shadows. Once this was an oak savanna. I still see white oak trees, 80 feet tall, bark deeply furrowed to outlast fire and flood, leaves dried to ochres and browns clinging to the branch. I take the path the stream might have taken over centuries of digging this ravine, curving and meandering deeper into the earth and the past. I am walking today, February 2nd, because I have made a promise to myself to become more active and walk on a daily basis. The Feast of St. Bridget on February 2nd is a Catholic holiday, festival, excuse me, except attached to a traditional pagan celebration, Imbolc, sacred to the Celtic goddess Bridget. Before the church turned goddess into saint, she was the patron of poets and metalsmiths, honored in the transformative powers of words, water, and fire. She was the source of life in each seed and the promise of the next crop. 
She was, oh, excuse me. Um, Bridget's Day symbolizes the continuity of seed to plant to harvest to seed. Underground, seeds germinate, beginning to grow before we can see the tiniest yellow-green sprouts. Between the train tracks and the creek, huts and shacks of scavenged wood became homes first to fur trappers, lumbermen, and casual laborers who found this valley a convenient place to squat. As years went on, immigrants from Sweden and then Ireland funneled in, leaving the name Swede Hollow. Phelan Creek meanders at the bottom of the riverbed between steep valley walls. Here, houses clustered and crowded together, and the only street followed the creek. Water was a natural spring, and the creek was a sewer. Vegetable gardens and barn animals supplemented incomes and fed the large, hungry families. I close my eyes, and I can imagine children hauling water, wearing their hand-knit sweaters, cows and pigs huddling in the tiny pens attached to even the smallest homes. I imagine laughter and crows in the tree branches cawing. It's easy, coming closer to the tracing of Open Creek, to see how important fresh water was before we had the luxury of running water. Snarled cottonwood trees, content to grow where floods frequent, lean over the creek, thrusting tangled limbs skyward. Burdock and thistles seal their hopes within bristling sea pods, and spent cattails have spent their futures into the air and stand in armies now of pale gold straw. Sumacs wear pointed helmets and march toward the top of the ridge. I imagine women reaching under chickens for eggs, each yellow yolk a sunrise, the smells of fresh milk, sweet cakes, and the earthy scent of coffee mingling with damp wool and wood stoves. Each wave arrived here searching for the promise of a future. Here they could plant their seeds, raise their children, and hold on to their original cultures while becoming American. Here fortunes could be dreamed of and futures planned. Now, no trace of those houses remain. A century after the first squatters, the spring water was declared unsafe and the remaining 14 families evicted. Their houses were burned by the city. All fled to better neighborhoods, and their children's children have no memory of this place. The seeds of the plants that one grew, grew, once grew here have drifted to fertile lands, and we are left with gritty black and white photographs and tales told. The land has returned to the oak, sumac, cottonwood, and cattails, and the tiny stream still finds its way through snow, ice, and history, flowing, as always, toward the future. Our final reader is Michael K. Gauze. He has taught German, sold men's clothes, and stocked diapers at midnight. His writing can be found online and in print. Originally from Tennessee, he now lives in Minnesota, where he is trying to write a memoir and be happy. Welcome, Michael. Um, so I like to drink beer uh, over here at Great Waters and hang out on the patio just about every Sunday and uh, write and people watch. It's a great place uh, for people watching with all the stuff that's around. And um, one day I noticed that sometimes they watch you back. So, um, if you turn to page 284, you can follow along. It's called The Sentinel. He wasn't there in the beginning. I think that's what piqued my interest. I'd have to scan the square twice before he even registered. With so many people straining to be noticed, it was intriguing to see someone actually content with anonymity. 
He was always dressed in the latest Goodwill stock and sitting on the edge of the ham courtyard. Acted more like a potted plant than a patron. I started watching him months ago when my relationship was in trouble and I felt the need to open my world and explore. The first time I saw him, I jumped as he was sitting not five inches from me for an hour and a half before I noticed. After that, I found myself scanning the crowds in my own personal Where's Waldo. It didn't take long to realize I was watching another watcher. He took in his surroundings, one after another, replying once in a while with a huge grin to no one in particular. Hipsters checking their bedheads and shop windows, suburban couples risking the deadly city for some ice cream, urban vampires perpetuating death as a way of life. He took in one after another seamlessly. Face, clothing, walk, face, smile. No one escaped his gaze. And I found myself more and more intrigued with the idea of playing voyeur to another of my kind. Over the summer, I must have seen him 20 to 30 times, just sitting and watching and waiting to smile. One day, I decided to break the wall and talk to him, partly, I think, to prove that he just wasn't in a mirage. I sat down in the chair next to him, and after a minute, broke the silence. You watch people more professionally than anyone I've ever seen. You're getting paid for this, right? He smiled, his gaze never altering from the landscape. After a moment, I realized he may not have even heard me. It was another full minute before he spoke. It's like listening to other people's conversations and trying to figure out where they're from. I paused so as not to upset the flow. Yeah, but you never get that close. They're just walking by. One one thousand, two one thousand, three one thousand. Still, it's the same thing. You just have to work with what you've got, like semen. One one thousand. Did he just say two one thousand? Sailors. They knew sun itself will only tell you so much. They used other things. The position of stars. Yep, more than that. He took a sip of cold coffee and another drag from his cigarette. One one thousand. Two one thousand. It's not all that different with people, but with them you're not just determining your position, but theirs. Their direction, too. You his voice caught itself as if it were about to fall, then let go. You start to figure their place on the timeline, theirs and those around them too. You too. I had been watching the flow of people while he spoke, but his last words made me turn my head. He was looking directly at me in a way that said, not only had my clothes disappeared, but my skin and bones as well leaving nothing but a confused vapor floating in a cheap patio chair. I said goodbye before heading toward the east end of the court toward home. When I looked back to wave, I thought of the impossible network of lines you could almost make out, infinite constellations expanding and converging like breath. I saw myself expanding forward and back. You were there too, along with the story a few months in the future. And there in the center, something else, a faint, twinkling light, like an old sailor's face, starting to smile. <laughs> Thank you all for coming today. This has been wonderful. I hope you've enjoyed it a tenth as much as I have.
and uh, hope to see you at some of the other upcoming readings. Again, there's postcards up on the table here, and if you have not picked up your copy, feel free to do so. You can get it autographed. So thanks again from the St. Paul Almanac. To hear more stories, learn more about Storymobile, and to find out where we'll be pedaling off to next, visit storymobile.org.